You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. Prosperity in Black America. What will this require? Is Black business prospering? Are we reaching women and minority-owned businesses? How do we achieve earning parity for wealth for our families? I'm that provocateur of change. I am Cindy Bright. Welcome to Heartbeat. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. We're excited to bring you a great show this evening that you're going to find of high interest. Let me first welcome in my two co-hosts that are on with me when we talk about the topic and who our guests are this evening. My co-host, Aaron Jones, who you, the community, well knows well. Let's bring Aaron in with us here this evening. Good evening, Aaron. And co-host Joy Stanford is here with me this evening. Let's bring Joy on as well. Now, we're doing a show this evening uh, about what does it mean to be an elected official, an elected official of color, as we're watching this all play out in national news in Tennessee. We're watching the abuse. We're watching what is happening to elected officials. And we, the three of us, myself, Joy, and Aaron, all have run for public office here. So as candidates, we have our own experiences to talk about. We've invited two other guests on with us this evening. They are former legislators, one from the Senate, one from the House. You're going to enjoy seeing them before I introduce them in. I just wanted to touch base with Joy and Aaron to talk about what we see happening nationally right now in the news and what some immediate thoughts are of what you both are experiencing or feeling before we welcome in our guests this evening. Aaron, let's start with you. What's going on with you these days and what we're, you're watching unfold? Wow, um, man, I've spent, so I actually last week, as you know, was on a cruise and um, didn't know till we got on the cruise that we wouldn't have Wi-Fi service or cell service. And so I, didn't know anything about what was happening in Tennessee until literally we got off the ship and everything was blowing up. Like all my social media was blowing up about Tennessee and man, so many thoughts about that. Um, in lots of ways, I'm not surprised. Like all the things that have been held quiet are being said out loud and done out loud. And, and I think the challenge for me is, um, just how explicit, I mean, you and I have talked about this, and I, I just did a TikTok about this yesterday. I am really frustrated by my white evangelical brothers and sisters who say they love Jesus and they're doing all of the, all that they're doing around politics is about Jesus. And yet just the hateful, demeaning things that are happening in state houses targeted yes. towards people of color. And, and I think that was the first thing that really struck me is, Man, Tennessee wants to preach. There are legislators that are preaching out of the Bible every week, um, white legislators, and just saying things that are so dehumanizing to other members, their colleagues. And and I just am I'm really, I'm disconcerted. Like it just like, are we reading the same Bible? Um, and so that is what really, my husband and I had a long conversation about that last night. He was a pastor in a predominantly white evangelical church. And, and he has a master's degree in political science. And we're just really wrestling with how have we come to such different perspectives on 
how we are supposed to show up in the world. Yes. I think it's going to get interesting as we have our guests on to hear uh, what you just referenced with the white evangelicals. Um, that tends to be on the Republican side. I think we're going to get some interesting intel tonight about the other side of this, the parties uh, as well. Joy, you have some comments before we introduce in our guests. Yeah. I, I, first of all, let's talk about the other side of it. The fact that those two politicians, those brave men of color stood up and stood steadfast against what was happening. And that to me spoke volumes. I think that's what we tried to do when we ran for office. And so I think that's what all of the people that, of color who run for office try to do when they step up. Um, it's not an easy decision to step up and run for mm -hmm. office. And when we do, we do not do it lightly. And so when we do, we bring all our fierceness to the game. And so I just appreciated the fact that they did not back down. They, they, they stood in their truth. They spoke their truth um, and they continue to do so. Um, and so that's what to me just I was just like I was very happy to see that part of it come to that to that end. Well, that is a great segue in for us to introduce two of our former elected officials who have been vocal in the state legislature. Amen. Let us welcome in former Senator Mona Doss. Uh, she is the former senator out of the 47th district. And let's also welcome in former state representative Jesse Johnson out of the 30th district. So to both of you, welcome onto Heartbeat. I think, Jesse, you have been on before. Bone is your first time. Welcome to this conversation about what it means to be an elected official in the Washington state legislature. Mona, I want to start with you and just maybe get an overview from you about what your experience was like. You served two terms. One term. One term. So a four-year term as a senator. Can you give us a sense on what your experience was like as a senator? Thank you so much. It's just a pleasure and an honor to be here and to see um, all of you. We've been friends for a long time, so it's really nice to be here. You know, I, I really ran for office under the premise that <clears throat> if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And people that look like me, black folks, brown folks, women have been on the menu for far too long. And I will say that what I learned being in that room, um, in the Senate caucus room, there's 28 chairs for the 28 senators from, from when I was there. And I think, you know, four or five senior staff members. And, and what I will say, what I learned is that yes, our interests are absolutely on the menu every single moment. I think a lot of legislators don't necessarily you know, no folks that are from communities of color. I mean, I, I just, it, it's hard to describe, but the folks that have been there in office for a very long time are generally white, male, and wealthy. Um, the salary is $50,000 a year when I started, and um, many folks can't afford that. And so that's one of the reasons why I think you'll see um, a different demographic in the legislature than um, really the folks that, in, in my mind, need to be there uh, to make sure we represent the rest. Thank you. Jesse, did you have some initial thoughts you wanted to talk about your experience in the House? Well, first of all, thanks, Cindy, for your visionary leadership uh, in the media space and Converge, um, bringing together collective voices. So I thank you for that. Uh, when I think about that time, I don't often, periodically, but not often, I think about the magnitude of folks like Mona and myself being in, in that time period uh, with the pandemic and post-George Floyd and um, Breonna Taylor and Manny Ellis locally. Um, it was a tough time, but I also think about why I got into politics in the first place. And that was to represent 
voices that um, did not have representation from the city council level on up. And so during that time period, because I had been on local politics, I kind of knew that, you know, any attempt to diminish the power of the status quo of a system that's been in place a long time is going to be very challenging and it's going to come with consequences. So when I went in, I went in knowing that. And so um, working on issues like police accountability, economic justice, juvenile justice issues, these are issues that the majority of the legislature do not want us to try to tackle. And so, um, you know, I have a community behind me that helps, you know, feed me and give me ideas and, and provide healing when I'm going through these spaces. But I also know that it's going to be tough to get things passed. And you have a, a loaded expectation um, as a legislator of color to get things passed quickly because your community needs it. Um, you know, folks in your community need these issues to be raised. And so um, I have that kind of motivation, but also kind of that stress level to go in and make things happen quickly. Um, so when I got in there to the legislature, I knew it was going to be tough, but I, but I thought about the fact that you know, if we can get things passed in this moment in time where we have momentum because of, unfortunately, things happening across the country, um, we needed to get those those things passed quickly. So um, I, I felt that we had the momentum on our side, but um, I kind of knew that it probably was going to be a challenging task and uh, we would only have so much time to do it. We as brown and black people, when we speak when we dare to speak, when we raise issues that you just commented about, you know, I, I can't remember the exact word you used, but you said you weren't, they didn't expect you or want you to have to tackle certain issues. But when we speak, and I'm going to speak from not an elected official, but certainly from somebody out of business and what happens when you open your mouth and raise your hand there is this huge backlash of know your place, right? They just, they just don't publicly say, maybe they did there, they just don't use the adjective that comes behind know your place, but they definitely behave like that in business. Is that the same kind of issue or can you describe maybe what the culture is in the legislature down there for elected people of color who are raising issues and or feeling the pressure, like what you said, to get things done for your constituents, the people who put you in office. What is that culture like? What did you personally experience there? I think Jesse hit the nail on the head. We, we go to the legislature with a sense of urgency. This needs to happen now. This needs to happen 10 years ago or 20 or 30 years ago. You know, I ran on a platform and, and really did a lot of environmental legislation. I also worked on issues of diversity and equity and housing. And the bill that I worked on for four years, the middle housing bill, to make sure that we have enough housing for our community in the communities that they live in, just passed the Senate two nights ago. And I worked on that bill for four years. And that to me is like, we all know that there's not enough housing in this community. We all know that there's not enough housing for all of the people that are moving into this area. And yet it takes five years for a bill like this to pass. That's historic. And, you know, it's, it's folks that you wouldn't necessarily think about that are blocking these bills, such as chairs of committees that don't want these bills to pass. And you don't know that. I did not know that for you know many years. And so I think for me, that sense of urgency is met with a, well, you can just bring the bill back next year. And I actually had someone tell me, well, if you pass that bill, what are you going to work on next year? 
And I thought, are you serious? Like there's a thousand different issues that we can work on. And the urgency is not there for a lot of folks because I think they're, they're, they just know they're going to be there. And I always said when I ran, I didn't run to get reelected. I ran to make a difference. And in the four years that I was there on my one term, I am proud to say that I did make a difference. And I knew that the issues that I championed and cared about most were urgent for my community and communities in the state. Were the, was the resistance when you referenced the chairs of some of the committees, are, are you referencing chairs on the Democratic side, Dem Democratic-led committees? Yeah, I mean, when I was in office, we were, the Democrats were in charge, in charge. and, you know, in power, I should say. And so all of the chairs were Democrats. So Okay. Are you willing to elaborate more? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Joy, did you have something? <laughs> I, I, I will say, uh, did, I think my question is, did you expect that when you went there? Because when we were running, I don't know what I expected. And so now I'm like. I'm well, gonna... we had very contrasting experiences so. as candidates. Very much so. And so Joy was wanted and I what wasn't. <laughs> well, that is that is the truth. You were supported. More so than you were. I wasn't And supported. we did not know that until two days, I think you called me two days after the election and told me your story. And then we watched. We started watching y'all. <laughs> work your way up and, and get there and then, and then start to me kicking ass and taking names um, and doing. And I love that you said we got there with a sense of urgency and we got there because we had a community behind us that wanted us to do the work. And I would, I would absolutely say as a person looking into the window, that is exactly what happens. You guys go in there and you're working and you know what you're going to do. And there's some people that are just kind of sitting there, make space. That's all I'll say. Make space. Aaron, are you still here? Yeah, I'm here. You know, I think, you have interesting. a nasty experience, too, when you ran. Um, well, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I think everyone's already spoken to this in a bit. But in a way, when I ran for office, I experienced the same things that I think you described as you talked about the way that Justin's were treated. They never called me, like, sit down, Black girl. But in every way, it was very clear, like, you're uppity. Why do you have to be so uppity? Like, just be small. I can remember once somebody said, uh, <laughs> Chris's campaign manager came to me and said, why do you have to wear heels all the time? You're already so tall. And, um, oh, you're so articulate. I mean, it's just all these ways of, you know, just be smaller. Don't, we don't want you to sound, you sound like you know too much. And um so there's just all these ways, even in Washington, progressive Washington state, where, um, you know, it's almost like you go back to what Dr. King said. It's not the, the openly racist people I'm not so worried about because I know who they are. They make themselves clear right away. I think the danger in places like here and places like Portland, I do a lot of work in Portland. And as Karen would probably say, places like San Francisco that call themselves progressive. I think the danger is the ways that we are subtly told to be small mm -hmm. and it's not explicit, but, but actually those subtle messages are more dangerous and, and create greater barriers because they're not visible to the average human. 
Mm-hmm. We know them, we feel them, we see them. But the average human says, oh, but they're Democrats. Oh, but they're great. But the reality is the work still doesn't get done. And so um, mm-hmm. it's easy, the status quo. I think Washington State is really good about talking all around a thing and never actually doing anything about the thing and not actually speaking directly to. And so legislation goes all around a thing and we never actually get to the heart of the thing. And, and I think that's the greatest danger of where we are as a state right now. Mm. And, and you both um, have said that, let me just paraphrase how I heard it, that you're trying to get something done and it is intentionally being stalled because they want to push it out for what reason? For just to hold on to the 25-year elected seat so that they can stay in their seats? I mean, what, what's behind all that? Well, I think uh, one thing that Mona referenced was, um, you know, the fact that there's these norms when you come into the legislature. It's like, okay, serve your time first. They kind of um, signal for an incoming freshman, for example, do some easy bills, you know, do some bills that are not going to cause any controversy or anything like that. Um, But frankly, like we were there for a reason. Uh, We don't come in as individuals, as candidates of color. We come in with people behind us like this is a movement. And we need to transform the system. And so they expect us to kind of take on easy issues and then serve our time and let, you know, more senior legislators take on the big issues that are going to take floor time. Because a lot of this goes into consideration um, with leadership on what goes to the floor is like, how long is it going to take? Um, for the bill to get through the process? How much is it going to cost? Does the chair and the vice chair agree? And remember, you know, when we come in as freshmen, we're also on committees that we typically don't want um, because it's just how it works. And so when I came in in 2020, um, that was kind of the signal given to me. And when I decided to take on police reform and accountability work, it was like, well, first of all, you know, you're kind of doing something outside your lane. And also, you know, usually there's like, the usual suspects that are involved in a bill. You have your legislator, the lobbyists, you know, the public research staff. You don't bring in community to the meetings at the Capitol to work on bills. And by doing that, it's like something totally different and it, it causes a lot of fear and I think stirs up a lot of like, okay, what's going on over there? And um, also puts a target on your back, frankly, when you're a candidate of color so um, or an elected of color. So, you know, I think it's, it's all of that combined that goes into either leadership making it more challenging for you um, to get a bill through the process or um, at least just putting a little more pressure on you to have to get it through. What committee were you assigned to that you weren't interested in? I was put on consumer protection and business. Um, I asked for education and public safety, so I didn't get it my first session. Um, the second session I did because I advocated so hard to the speaker herself. I said, hey, I want to be on this. You know, this is summer 2020. All the marches were happening and uh, protests. And I was like, hey, it needs to be a black elected working on police accountability. It can't just be anyone. And so I think they felt kind of forced to put me on it. So putting you guys in positions that it's kind of like taking somebody who walks in with an MBA and telling them that you have to be a clerk typist for five years until you can work your way up. I mean, it's the white supremacist oppressive system at play at its finest, correct? Mona, what what did you serve on when you were there? So it's very different in the Senate because there's half as many people. So I did I did get the committees that I wanted, which was environment, housing, I was actually on finance because I have a finance uh, background. I ran a mortgage business for many years. Um, And I also served on transportation, which was extremely important to my community. 
But as Jesse was talking, I just remembered a story of where I was sitting in the Senate wings and I was told by the floor leader that I had one hour to convince this one particular lobbyist that I would, that I could, you know, that he would bless this bill being on the floor. And so I'm sitting there, I have one hour and I'm sitting there, I'm like, come on, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And, you know, like, I'm like every single way, you know, I do have an MBA and I'm tenacious as hell. And so I'm like figuring out every way to get this bill across. And he finally just looks at me and he starts laughing. He's like, I heard about you. And I said, what are you talking about? He's like, I heard you don't ever give up. And this is a white male lobbyist. And I just looked at him. I said, how the fuck do you think I got here? Like, how do you think I got here? Like, I had to get here. This is how I got here. I got here because I am tenacious and I don't give up. That's how I got here. Would you run again? I thought about running for a long time. Um, You know, I I knew I wasn't going to run again, but for this, for the legislature. And I will tell you, it's every day that goes by, the the less and less (laughs) I have desire to get back. And my, my mission and vision now is to just, get more people to the table, help elect more black and brown women. I think that's what we need. Well, and it does, it begs the question, you know, we're all, we're all watching this play out, right? We're watching it nationally. We were intrigued to have you both here to share your experiences. Um, I don't know all of your ages. I know I teased Jesse before the show. He's my son's age. And so how do we keep younger people engaged and who have the stomach to want to go in and be abused? I mean, is that too strong of a word to use about like those uh, representatives in Tennessee? They're being abused just to watch that. What, what are your thoughts, Jesse, about that? Well, I think for one, you know, we can't put too much onus on one particular candidate. I think I love what, Mona, you're doing with these slates of candidates of color. Like we need power at every level, local, school board, city council, county council, you know, state and national politics. We need them at every level. And that gives us more power. I mean, the one thing about the two Justins, as they call them, like at least they have each other. Like they're they're battling through this together. And, you know, I think the more we can have more people at every level going into politics and you think about like for black people, like we have a history of revolutionaries and our young people are doing the exact same thing right now. You Mm -hmm. see people in, you know, school classrooms advocating to their teachers to teach black history. Mm -hmm. You know, you see them going up to the Capitol to advocate for gun, uh, responsible gun legislation. So I think, you know, we have the power and there's power in numbers, the more that we can just equip them with the tools. And what I would like to do is just educate them on how the system works so that they can go in better prepared because that's what it comes down to. It's it's all about timing, preparation, and your positionality once you're there to get things passed. Mm-hmm. I also think it's, if we're going to get more black and brown folks to run, they have to understand and know the dynamics that they're walking into. I, I jokingly say to Cindy all the time, I feel like we are way more powerful now given my position as a political director in an environmental space, which there aren't a lot of black women in that space or a lot of brown women in that space, but that we now are more powerful because we are trying to help younger folks get into those positions rather than us having been elected. So um, what, what's the, first of all, you need to be on a panel. I'm just thinking about that as you were talking. Paid, Um, (laughs) paid panel, Jesse, paid panel. (laughs) A paid panel. panel. 
so that again, so that they know the dynamics they're walking into, but also understand that they have that leverage and that power. How do you think that we should go about presenting that to them? Because I'm 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 trying to get folks over in uh, Eastern Washington, in the Yakima Nation, in uh, the Latin uh, Latinx community to step up and run, but. There's no infrastructure there. They're starting to build an infrastructure there. But how do you just get out there and run? What do we do? Well, that goes back to the preparation part of the work. And so, you know, I remember running for city council in 2017, an incumbent Republican. And, you know, my local LD just said, hey, we need somebody to run. I was kind of the, the throwaway candidate at the end. So they put the other two that it announced to the easier candidate, so to speak. And I got the tough candidate. But yeah, I it got took, that too. You know, I know what you mean. <laughs> but it took like building a team to go out and knock on 15,000 doors, raising money. Um, and now I know that process. Like, I think we can go and educate the youth on how to do this process right and to use the, the social capital that they do have. Because we have capital in our communities that are unused, like, you know, churches, um, community spaces, um, and then bringing folks together like they did in the old days. You think about Dr. King and the civil rights movement. A lot of that work was paid for by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that brought together Baptist leaders across the country to be able to pay people to go out and march and That's get right. people out on the streets. So we can do that in the political process as well. You know, um, did you hear me saying paid over the mic? Like I'm, my, my thing is equity, right? Pay equity, wealth. Like I'm so sick of watching uh, us as brown and black people be asked to do 50,000 things for free all the time. And Mona, you mentioned that um, the salary to serve in these house uh, Senate was what was it? Fifty thousand. I think when I started, it was somewhere between fifty and fifty-two thousand. It's the same. It's, it's the same on the. Yeah. So. That's below poverty level salaries. So we as a state are fighting for equity, but we're paying the people that represent the other people poverty wages to represent them. Right. Does that ever get talked about? I think, um, you know, the year that we decided not to run again, you know, Kirsten Harris, Talley, myself, Emily Wicks, um, Jesse, you know, it was a sort of like a head scratcher. Like, why are all these first term legislators not coming back? Did I just? Okay, I didn't. Um, and so for me, you know, th there were a thousand reasons I didn't run again, but one of them was the finances. I'm a single woman. I do not have, you know, a large bank of resources. I'm one of, I think when I counted my first year, I was one of five renters in the entire mm -hmm. legislature, 147 people, and there's five renters. And, you know, I just couldn't afford to do it. And then, oh, by the way, when you run for office, it's 80 to 100 hours a week of unpaid labor. You remember. And I couldn't do that. I knew that I would not be able to make ends meet if I did that uh, running for office. And I don't do anything halfway. So, you know, I would have done the 80 to 100 hours a week. And financially, I just couldn't do that. And so, you know, I, I met with a group of um, folks after I decided not to run. And they were very curious, you know, what, what can we do to keep folks like you in the legislature? And, you know, I will say the other side, they have they have endowments and they have, you know, paid um, intern. They, they have ways to keep their electeds financed. Who, who are you referring to with they? I'm talking about the other side. The R's. Other side. Yes. The other I'm side of the I'm just trying aisle. to make her say it. I'm just trying to make her say it. <laughs> the other side of the aisle. Yes. 
Um, you know, and so I, you know, I said to these group of very large donors, I said, if you want to keep folks like me in the legislature, then you have to make it so that we have jobs, you know, and it's really hard to have a job as a legislator. You're gone two months or three months a year. So either yeah. 60 days or 105 days. One employer is going to be like, oh, yeah, don't worry. You know, and then I found the employers that did want, you know, that w would find value in having somebody with my credentials it's a conflict of interest for them. So then they don't want to hire you because it's a perceived conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. No, yeah. yeah. We're going to uh, take just a quick commercial break and then we're going to pick this back up with sen former Senator Mona Doss and former uh, state representative Jesse Johnson. A fascinating conversation. We'll be right back. COVID-19 are my income, my health and my family. We were about to lose our home when we heard we might be eligible for homeowner assistance funds from the government. We called 1-877-894-HOME and a housing counselor stepped in. They talked to our lender and saved our home because falling on hard times does not have to mean losing your home. Federal funding details at WashingtonHAF.org. Welcome back to Heartbeat. I am your host, Cindy Bright. This evening, we're having a conversation with uh, two of our formerly elected officials, uh, former Senator Mona Doss, former Representative Jesse Johnson, along with my co-hosts, Joyce Stanford and Aaron Jones this evening. We're having a great conversation about what does it mean to be an elected official and what's going on in those spaces. We're watching nationally what's happening with uh, our brothers that were out there representing constituents, fighting for the rights of people, which is why people run for office. That's why people are elected. And the I'm using the term abuse. The abuse, just watching it on TV, and then the trauma that we all feel when we watch these things play themselves out on TV is harmful enough, let alone being the elected official having to be in those spaces talking or trying to progress issues for brown and black people. Now let's bring back on um, former uh, Senator Doss and Representative Johnson before the break. Uh, we were starting to step into the mental health aspect of this. How does this impact you both? What did you both, what was your experience mentally and what did it take for you to overcome or are you overcome? Are you still traumatized by it when you see elections coming out? Uh, I, I mean, I didn't think about this till recently, but, um, there is a level of trauma associated with, um, running for office, being in office. And of course it's different when you're running for office, you're portraying to the, to the community, like I'm ready for this. I need to get there to be able to bring our voices to the table and you're portraying that to the electorate, but that's different from actually governing. Once you're there and you have to govern, it's a whole nother set of challenges. And just as an example, um, working on police reform and accountability work, um, I was out there probably doing every interview about the work that we were doing, even though our caucus said this was a priority following George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Manny Ellis. Like I was the one out there being put into the media to do interviews and advocate for what we were doing. And that's totally fine because I took that on. But, you know, there is a whole nother level of people having your back and, ha and having a, a caucus and colleagues that have your back. And I did feel a level of burnout because of the amount of not only legislative work, we're, we're up till 10, 11 p.m., sometimes into the early morning hours on the floor voting. And then to wake up the next morning, you have to do every single interview on an issue. 
and you know not receiving that much help and support. Um, one of the first things I told the the speaker and to the governor who I met with after, I was like, this needs to be a full-time legislature with full-time pay, but we also need to have mental health support for all legislators, particularly legislators of color where you have that extra added burden of work. And so I think, you know, that's something that we need to address and having, you know, so many issues to work on where folks, other folks there, um, you know, no shade on colleagues, but folks that are just there to take a seat or to be there and not push the envelope, but to work on transformational issues that take a lot of courage, a lot of energy, a lot of resources. Like we need more support and resources. Mm -hmm. Like Mona said earlier, it's not just resources to get you into office, but once you're there, how are you going to retain people by having more supports? Mm -hmm. what, what would you say, you know, just wild guess is the percentage of people who are occupying space there versus people who are doing work? Mona? If you're going to hit a percentage. <laughs> uh, well, I will, I will say that in four years, I passed almost 40 bills. And some of my colleagues pass one or none. Um, you know, and they've been there for a long time. I mean, I would say, gosh, percentage. I, <laughs> that's a great I'm question. I'm going to say 80%. <laughs> Jesse said 80%. 80%. <laughs> Is that both caucuses you're referring to when you say 80%? Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. Out of how many how many on each side? You said 49? 147. 147. So, so roughly 100 people are taking taxpayer money, going down into office and being career politicians and occupying space and then making your life hell to, as to not pass anything uh, in your tenure. I want to clarify, there's 149 legislators. So, okay. Yeah. Hmm. But there's no one to step up. and Or we have to make sure there's folks that want to step up into those positions or even run against folks who have been there a long time. Let's discuss which, that, Joyce. That's hard. Let's discuss that. <laughs> about. Did you both run for open seats? So I was actually appointed, um, my predecessor, Christine Reeves, um, ran oh, for Congress. Right. I was that's appointed right. 2020 and then I had to run to retain my seat. Right. Right. Um, but to your point about, you know, folks taking up seats, like how it works in our caucus, at least in the house was like, we have all these issues. The community's coming to Olympia telling us about, we need to address these issues. Who wants to work on it? And the chair, the speaker leadership will ask that. And usually it's a lot of just silence and, you know, folks aren't raising their hands to work on it or, you know, it's like, hey, you know, this person needs to be the one to work on it. And you get a lot of veiled sort of stereotyping and stuff like that. It's like, oh, of course, uh, you know, this black individual should work on juvenile justice <laughs> issues or justice involved youth just because they're black. And most of our youth are disproportionately black in the system. But, you know, that's kind of how it worked, at least in the House. And so when I took on police accountability, no one else was going to take it on. And Remember, this is pre-2020 election. We only had four black people in the entire 149 legislature. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was me and Deborah Intiman, Melanie Morgan, and John Lovett. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we had to really work on, on us four. Like, which issues are we going to take on? Melanie, I'm generational wealth gaps. I'm housing. Deborah, I'm this. John Lovett was not going to be a part of that. So that left me to take on police accountability. So that's kind of how it just that's how the dominoes rolled in, in my case, but I think it, it depends in each caucus how that sort of plays out. Erin, mm. did you have something to add to this? No, I think um, what's interesting is, I, I love what Jesse said about 
the weight, the burden for marginalized communities to carry so much more of the weight. And there's not a, I think about having worked at OSPI as the assistant state superintendent and just all the emotional, um, mm -hmm. the manipulation, the attacks that I had to endure just to show up in meetings. Whereas mm -hmm. a lot of the, the white men could just show up and do whatever and there was no consequences for them or not the same kinds of consequences for them to push against the system as there are for us when not only are we having to come in and prove ourselves every day on the job, you're also having to push against systems and support your communities in a way that, um, I don't know, there's a way that we represent our whole community. White folks don't have to represent all white people, but we're expected to represent all black people when there are so few of us. And so I just appreciate Jesse you're sharing um, just the emotional toll of that and your recognition of it and the, this need for mental health support. And the thing that I realized as an educator in K-12, as I talk to principals and superintendents who live in black bodies, they're experiencing the very same things as they go before mm -hmm. school boards as a superintendent, um, just the ways that they are abused emotionally and, and um, physically <laughs> with words mm -hmm there's a way that that takes a toll on them in a different way than a white man who's a superintendent or a white woman who's a superintendent. And so I just think recognizing how do we come alongside and support, it takes a different level of support to be a person of color and leadership, especially in the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think we talk about it much. I mean, both of us lost, including Aaron, we lost our races, myself twice. Um, and I don't think anyone wanted to talk about how that affected me or any of the other women who ran. And I mean, I don't care who you are, you do all that work and you get to that one night and it doesn't go your way. That was a year's worth of therapy. <laughs> that was yeah, a I year mean, and I, a half of therapy. And I, I personally had people saying to me, who does she think she is? And she needs to wait her turn, uh, even though it was an open seat, but my that seat at the time was predetermined who was going to take that seat. And so again, I ran against somebody who was white and wealthy. And so, you know, her ability, I mean, I don't have bad things to say about her today. I'm just, it's just a different dynamic, right? You come in with money and power already established. And so you can scoot into the seat and go take care of your life while I was pulling 80, an 80 hour a week campaign and running a business and trying to keep my uh, sanity together. And I didn't, I mean, my campaign people will tell you to this day, it wasn't pretty uh, in my final hours of the election. And I happened to used to be on Monday nights, this show when I was on radio. And so the night before producer back there can attest to what happened on air that Tuesday after, because uh, it was awful. And I've never experienced something so absolutely awful in terms of how people treat you, um, in terms of I can't take a picture with you because you're not the preferred candidate, um, in terms of the tone Meetings, of voice, taking a meeting with won't you, won't take a meeting with you, won't. I mean, it's it is it was beyond disgusting. And I've worked in corporate America for 30 years and I found it to be the worst experience I had ever had with human with humans. <laughs> Um, am I off base with what your, any of your experiences are or have been? When I first got to the Senate, 
you know, I'm excited. I'm, you know, just elated to be there. And like Jesse said, there's not that many folks. Normal Mona. What's that? Normal Mona. Nor- normal me, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I did, you know, and you, you alluded to this, how many black folks were in the Senate. And mm-hmm. the year after George Floyd, um, with the year that George Floyd was murdered, I started to realize that there were all these black women that were running mm-hmm. and there were nine black yes. women running for the legislature. Yes. And so I started a pack and I raised money for them and I raised half a million dollars in four months and got six of the eight elected. Mm-hmm. And it was one of um, the most proud things that I've ever done and been a part of. Joy and I were on your board. Yes. yes. And Aaron. And Aaron. And Aaron. Yes. And Aaron. We're all yeah, part of this. And, and Joy, you know, was one of our candidates. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I had um, Representative April Berg told me that I was the first person, you know, and I put, put them to, we put them together in a nine grid of like, mm-hmm. here's the nine black women faces. And people were elated and they were excited to jump on board and, and get these women elected because we just had that white reckoning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to see some of that stuff already being rolled back in the legislature where they're like, oh, backpedaling already. And it's just it's 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 too bad, but it is going back to status quo. And so I will tell a story about when I started in the Senate. And I was told probably by four to six white men, that it's customary for the new people to not speak the first year in caucus. <laughs> Sorry. To laugh. I thought that was what that room was for. And I will tell you as a person, and for those of you who know me, I'm a talker <laughs> and I didn't speak because I was told that many times that it was customary for us to learn the ways. And I didn't speak. And then I listened for the first time in a long time, probably I listened. And that's when you hear the nuances of what people say. And what came out was, you know, in May, uh, right after my first year, I was at an event and called my colleagues racist, sexist, misogynistic, and full of hate. And there was demands for me to be censured and all of this stuff. And what, you know, it was the first reckoning of the Senate, I think. And what has transpired since then is diversity and equity training and, you know, real light, like deep dives into this. And some of these folks have never done that type of work before. And so it was really powerful for them. And I will say that they don't tell new people that anymore. When, when we helped elect uh, Senator Nobles, Senator Twan Nobles, first black woman to be in this legislature for 10 years, I believe, they didn't tell her that. And that makes me happy. And it makes me proud to know that my words and, and people aren't going to be silenced because you do your work, work hard. I, I knocked 8,000 doors personally, 30,000 on my campaign. And then to get in a room where you were told by not one person, but multiple people that it's customary for you to be silent. I think it's a powerful um, statement that, because Jesse, you said something a few minutes ago, very similar to it, which is, um, almost that some of us don't run to go spend the rest of our lives in Olympia. We go for impact. And if our seat is up in two years, then our seat is up. We go hit the ball. We go hit the ground running. We go get done what we can get done. And then we pass the baton on to somebody else. I mean, I think, 
I think that's a mindset. I know I have no desire to be a career politician, but a lot of people do. They want to hold those spaces of power just to be power, to be in a position of power. And so when you think about what it will take for us collectively, you know, as a country, we're watching it um, unfold each day, right? New people, I hadn't even heard of those two representatives until the past week. And so they've already made history and a mark by refusing to go away. What advice or what thoughts do you want to share with people who are listening to this or watching this program? Young people who, who are considering running for an elected seat and they're hearing how all, all of us have had awful experiences. So they're sitting there going, well, why would I run? But we do need people to step in and fight. What would you say to the younger generation or your generation, Jesse? How, how's that? <laughs> I'm, I'm still a millennial. You know. um, well, I mean, I think, you know, one thing we're in turbulent times right now. And when you look back at history, I'm a history buff, um, history cyclical. So there's moments of, triumph and there's moments of despair. And I think, you know, just look at when we went from President Obama to President Trump. I mean, that, I mean, how can you get that much more different night and day? Right. So I think, you know, we're in one of those kind of downward spirals. And my question to everyone in elected politics right now is what is your moral compass? Like, what are you there for? What's your purpose? Why are you there when we have so much going on with economic, tough economic times? You know, we're on the edge of a recession. You know, we have people still being killed in the streets, uh, transphobia, LGBTQ phobia, you know, homelessness, drug addiction, all these issues, you know, um, guns, you know, America's um, love were for guns. I mean, I think we have to look at what's our moral compass for being there. And that's what I would ask anyone that's wanting to run. And then also, once you get there, are you going to be a conformist or a reformist? You know, mm -hmm. I think you have that choice. Um, it comes with consequences if you're going to be a reformist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you have a good support system? You know, you're, when you run for politics, it's your entire family. Like, there's times, and then when you're in government, it's your entire family. When I was coming back from doing days in Olympia, like I would come home moody and my wife's like, oh no, you need to stay outside and come back with a different <laughs> attitude. You know, you know, so um, I would have to do that, go drive around and for about an hour and get my mental health together before I come inside and eat dinner because, you know, it just takes a toll on you. And so I think, you know, we have to have better support systems individually. And then as a collective, um, as a collective spirit, like how do we make sure that the candidates that we're putting together to run are equipped with all of that once they get there? Mm. Mona, what thoughts do you have about this for the next people behind you? The only way we're going to make true change is if we elect different people. So if we continue to elect the same folks that have been elected in the past, you know, and, and, and Jesse, I don't know if you've had this experience, but there's a rule, uh, there's a room in the House uh, called the rules room. And when you look around the wall, it is a huge wall, two walls. And it's just white dude, white dude, white dude, white dude, white dude. I mean, there's, I don't know, 50 of them. And then we have John Lovick, who was the uh, speaker of the house uh, for a brief stint, a uh, black man. And then uh, Lori Jenkins, who's uh, a woman and a member of the LGBT community. And when you see that wall and then you, you're standing in front of it, you realize that you being there is an act of political um, empowerment. You being there is an act of all the ancestors that have come before you, every black person, every brown person, every immigrant, everyone that is othered, you are there representing them. And it's a really powerful 
statement. You know, my community in Kent, 148 languages are spoken in the school district. So that is, you know, you feel the weight of that when you are there legislating. And what I will say to any young person that is thinking about running, reach out to me. Um, it is my mission to help you get elected and keep you there. I really, truly believe that you are the ones that we've been waiting for. And we need you to be in these spaces. And now in the House, there's more um, folks of color. I mean, it's, I think it's, uh, there's, well, there's 50 some percent women. There's also in the Senate, but the House has uh, a lot of folks of color just got elected. And so there is that camaraderie and that community that does keep you uh, sane and safe and feeling em empowered to keep going. Um, find a friend, phone a friend and, um, you know, get the resources that you need. But Jesse's absolutely right. You have to have a strong community around you and loved ones that will support you. And what, you know, what's the, you know, Joy, you raised a lot more money than I did, but you had, you had some help because you were running against a Republican. I did. For, for brown and black people to get into these seats, um, they are mostly running on the Democratic ticket. And so to turn those seats over, a Democrat has to challenge a Democrat. And so, and the people that are in positions of power don't want to touch or help the new people that come along for all of their political reasons why they don't want to do that, which is completely against what equity actually is. Or democracy. Or democracy. But when you say that you want equitable representation in anything, you have to put more resources behind the marginalized people than the people who have the money and power and name recognition already. What advice do we give younger people who need to go out and fundraise and out fundraise when we come from communities that, um, you know, we're not going to necessarily be able to pull in all the maximum thousand dollar donations here and there? What, what do we what advice do we give them? Uh, I don't know if you remember this, Mona, but when you ran for Congress, one of the things you told me was message everyone in your phone, just give five to ten dollars or you had a specific number, I remember. But every single person I Facebook messaged, I text messaged, I emailed everyone in my contact list. And you'd be surprised. You know, my opponent had, you know, like you said, thousand, two thousand dollar donations. But those ten to twenty five to fifty donations added up. And my goal was to build a base of support financially before I even announced. Um, and this was back in city council, but I think it's the same at the state level. Like you need to build that momentum for your campaign before you even announce or before you even put it out there that you're going to run against someone else because they're going to look at your PDC and see if you're a viable candidate. And then other people that may donate may see if you're viable. So if you start out with thirty to $50,000 for, for a local race, um, $100,000 for a big state Senate race or something like that's going to make a difference in who wants to donate to your campaign because people gravitate towards success. And so they want to see you with a, with a heavy base first. So um, thank you for that advice. I mean, that played a big role in me being able to raise money. Mm -hmm. My background is sales, business development. And so I took to fundraising like a fish to water. <laughs> and I raised a hundred grand when I ran for Congress against, you know, again, someone who else was already chosen that I didn't realize for a long time. And then when I raised money for the Senate race, you know, I think I raised uh, 350 or 400,000. And, you know, fundraising is something that I actually teach. I teach it at Yale. I teach it at Emerge. I put it on my website, monadoss.org. Um, I put my fundraising class there. Thanks for that, Tia. All of my best tips. 
Um, so if you are planning on running for office, you absolutely need to know how to raise money. That is, Jesse mentioned this. It's what makes you a viable candidate. And what makes you a viable candidate in this country is being able to raise money. And everybody took me seriously when they saw that I could raise money, period. That's why I got to where I was. And also- Can I share a perspective? Um, yeah, go ahead, Erin. Oh, sorry, Erin. Go ahead, Joy. Joy, sorry go ahead about first. That. Um, I also think there's many different organizations now that are um, taking notice of people of color who are stepping up to run for office. So I'm thinking about uh, One America. I'm thinking about um, Latino Community Fund out in Yakima. I'm thinking of these smaller nonprofits who are raising dollars. Um, also, my organization, Washington Conservation Action. We're looking for those candidates who may not be like the person that's going to raise $50,000, but they're the person that that community needs. They've been working in that community already. They know the issues in that community. They know the people in that community and they know the infrastructure of that community. So making sure folks are reaching out to those, those, those candidates. And I think a lot of our organizations do that. Emerge Washington does that. Um, I know Washington Conservation Action does that. We're reaching out um, and, and doing that outreach to, to candidates now. So Aaron, you were going to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to add, I raised more money than um, anyone has ever raised for the OSPI race. I raised $245,000. And um, I'm going to offer just a couple of thoughts. So I did not know to raise money beforehand. And, yeah. and in fact, yeah, I either. wasn't considered a viable candidate in the first three or four months. But I, if you're going to run statewide, you need to hire a fundraiser. So you yes. need to hire somebody who will who has the, the bank of names to call. And the thing that I learned, I think for local races, you can use your phone book, you can use your Facebook account. If you're running statewide, that is not enough. And, and what we learned is I, I did raise more money than Chris Reichdahl, and I raised it in $25 to $50 increments. So to Jesse's point, um, I absolutely believe in raising it by individual people and not having a bunch of companies and corporations and even unions. Um, I believe we got to get the individual vote. But here's the thing that I learned um, in my fundraising adventure is every call that I made to a stranger was an opportunity to get their vote and the vote of everyone in their family. And so as much as that sucked, and I hate being on the phone, I absolutely hate it. I learned so much and I built up this incredible community. I'm still in touch with a lot of those people and they're never people that were in my circle. And so if you're, if you're trying to run statewide or even for a Senate race where there's a larger community, your phone book is not going to be enough. You're going to need to stretch and it's absolutely worth investing in someone who does this for a living to help you with their bank of names. So please invest in that person, especially if you're running not just a local race, if you're running statewide or running for Senate. A couple of key things I want to uh, reemphasize to our audience, particularly if you're interested or curious or contemplating, because we have some races coming up this year that we're going to quickly talk about before we finish the show. But a couple of things I think are really important that myself and I know Joy, we did not know. We ran in 2018, so none of these systems, Emerge Washington was not available. Um, I um, threw my name in the hat in May at the 11th hour after everybody and their mom already had their campaign managers. I didn't even know how to hire a campaign manager. So getting money 
ahead of time. When you hear uh, Jesse reference the PDC, which is the Public Disclosure Committee, it's a process. It's a you have to file to run, and it's publicly seen where people can see the money that's coming in and who's donating to it. So it's important that if you're thinking about that, that you begin that process and start that a year ahead of time, if possible, because it's a lot of work to do that. The other thing to factor in what Mona said um, is these seats are, and I will use parentheses, are already chosen. And so there is an engine behind the scene that lines up succession into seats and who they want to put in it. And so when you challenge those kind of people, you're challenging somebody, you're going up and in, against an internal system. So it is the more you can get in front of all of this, the better your odds are. Uh, because even looking at federal races, Sherry Beasley out fundraised her opponent exponentially and still lost. So there's a whole engine and an ecosystem you've got to navigate. Final question for the evening. I told you it's going to be the fastest hour of the uh, night. There are some important races coming up. This is the non-House and Senate year. This, these are municipal races that are going on now, right? So judge seats, school boards, that sort of thing. Do either of you or both of you have some quick thoughts about where we need to pay attention or where we need help on which boards or anything like that that comes to mind that we should be focusing on? Because filing deadline is May 19th. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, what comes to mind for me is school board. Um, I'm just referencing my own community in Federal Way where I live. Um, we had a really, you know, conservative right wing guy win last year. Um, my former uh, colleagues on the Federal Way City Council, three of them lost last year. So it's now um, four Republicans to three Democrats on the city council. And so when you think about, not that it's all partisan, but just belief systems, like mm -hmm. you see what's happening across the country with school boards, like in Florida and this anti-woke movement, um, CRT, all this stuff. Like it's happening here in the state of Washington mm -hmm. too. Like the guy that won in Federal Way is trying to ban black history in our school district. Like this is happening. And so we need to pay attention to those races. Um, I'm also a fan of like researching on the judge races because um, they make so much impact on who goes into the system, who mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, um, this, all the way up to the state Supreme Court, but the local level too. And so I think, you know, this is, this is an important year to get momentum going into 2024, which is obviously a huge year, Congress, Senate, uh, president. So I think, you know, just making sure that we're researching, doing our research on the, the local races. Awesome. Mona, did you? I, I couldn't agree with Jesse Moore. I mean, the local races really are where policy change happens and they're very much need to pay, be paid attention to. And a lot of times it's it's, you know, it's your first race. They always say, especially to women of color, BIPOC women, you have to run once or twice or three times to win. And so these are ways for you to get out there, get your name out there. Um, and if you can raise money, it's really, you know, you can showcase that. And oftentimes some other great job will happen. I mean, I look at Joy as the perfect example. She ran twice and then got noticed by a, an amazing organization, environmental organization, and is now their political director. That is something she probably never would have thought was gonna happen. Ever, in my life. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> and so you don't know what's gonna happen when you run, and there's stories about this, uh, like this all over. So if you have that desire to run, please do it. I couldn't agree more. When they tell us to shut up, we go into media, right? So, <laughs> go, Cindy. <laughs> That's it. Look, we're at the hour. I 
um, I wanted to thank both of you for coming on and just having this kind of a candid conversation. Our community needs to hear it. They need to see people who look like them, who have been in, who have chops, who have spent time in this uh, environment and have a lot of experience. Mona, I know you uh, are publishing a book. You are doing a lot right now to help teach people. Made a movie. Made a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll give you 30 seconds. My movie is about black and brown women running for office around the country. And it's called Badass Women Doing Kick-Ass Shit. And I'm really proud of it and uh, really excited about the next version. Is it coming out now? Um, We are going to have a private viewing on April 21st in Renton. If you go to our website, uh, bodkas.com, B-A-W-D-K-A-S.com, you can um, sign up to learn more about the private showing. See what happens. See what happens when you run for office and you spend time (laughs) and you get fires lit under you. Thank you all for coming on with us this evening and to our guests and our viewers who joined us tonight. Thank you for joining us on this journey of black media and heartbeat. We will look forward to seeing you all next week. Have a good evening. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.